Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Have you ever thought about what people are going to be saying at your funeral? Say, wow, Dave, way to bring the mood down in a hurry. But really, have you ever thought about what people are going to be saying at your funeral? Uh, it reminds me of an old story about a mob boss who came to a local priest and said, my brother has died and I want you to do the funeral. And the priest was like, oh boy, I don't know if I want to get involved in this. You know, the brother was a criminal himself, had led a very bad life. And the mob boss prevailed upon the priest and said, no, you're going to do his funeral and you're going to say he was a saint. And the pastor's like, I don't know how I can do this, you know. So finally, the mob boss says, uh, you know, look, if you do this, there's going to be a big fat check in, in the offering. If you don't, I, I just can't guarantee your safety, Padre. So the priest is feeling like he's got to do this funeral. He, he, he doesn't know how he's going to do it. So he gives it some thought and some prayer and finally figures out how it's going to go down. So the day of the funeral comes and he begins to eulogize the mob boss's brother. And he gets into the realities of this guy's life, that he was a bad dude. He committed a lot of crimes. He, he was an evil man. He went on and on and on. People are getting really, really squirmy, you know, as he's going on giving this eulogy. And, and finally, the priest comes to the end of the eulogy. He said, yes, he was a terrible, terrible man. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> Hopefully, people are going to be saying better things than that at your funeral. Uh, I've probably officiated at 200 funerals over the years. Some of them have been very difficult because it's been hard to find good things to say about them. And uh, other ser uh, services have been a joy. And, and the ones that are an absolute joy are the ones where basically the, the bottom line of the whole funeral service is there is no better way to explain this person's life than Jesus. Jesus made all the difference in this person's life. Uh, and I hope that, you know, when I am eulogized, that that's what people will say about me. You know, what a life. Who could live that way? And the answer comes back, the one thing that can explain, explain this person's life is Jesus. Now, here in the last half of Galatians 1, Paul is trying to explain his life and ministry to people who knew him but were being told a bunch of lies about him. Paul had founded the churches that this letter is addressed to, the churches in Galatia, but others have moved in behind him, calling both his ministry and his message into question. And they paint him as, you know, somebody who claims to be an apostle, but he doesn't have approval from the uh, apostles in Jerusalem to go around calling himself an apostle. You know, he's not like the other apostles. And they find fault with his message because it differs from the version of the gospel they like to teach back in Judea, 
Uh, in short, these brothers who are ethnically Jewish and most likely hail from Judea think that Paul should be accountable to the Jewish element of the church clustered in and around Jerusalem. And before he goes on any more missionary journeys, he should get official approval from the Jerusalem church and teach his converts that once they become Christ followers, then they need to also obey the law of Moses and adopt Jewish ways. Now, Paul, in the first half of Galatians 1, has already come out very strongly against these Judaizers. And when I use that word Judaizers, I mean those who would turn Christian faith into a new kind of Judaism. And he's gone so far in the beginning of chapter 1 as to say that those who preach the gospel these guys are preaching should be eternally condemned. And now in the latter half of chapter 1, Paul goes on to assert his independence from these Judaizers, these false teachers, and their way of thinking. And he's in essence saying, well, so what if I don't conform to your idea of apostleship? And, and what if I'm not like the other apostles that they've known back there in Jerusalem? So maybe my version of the gospel differs from what they would teach, namely that good Christians should start acting like Jews. But what if Jesus himself gave me that message? Uh, but what if Jesus himself intervened in my life and made me an apostle? And that's what explains my life. And what if instead of preaching an errant version of the gospel I got from someone else, what if I preach a gospel I got from Jesus himself? Paul is writing to the believers in Galatia as if to say, you'll only understand my life and my ministry if you see all of that in terms of the unique work of Jesus Christ in my life. Paul says, only Jesus can explain what I've become. Only Jesus can explain the ministry that I now have. It has little to do with the other apostles. It has virtually nothing to do with those folks back in Judea. It has everything to do with Jesus. He's the only way to explain it. And, and it's Paul's self-awareness in all of this that inspires us to live a life that can only be explained by Jesus. Now, Paul's testimony in the rest of chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, shows us at least two ways that we can live that kind of life. You want to live a life that can only be explained by Jesus? Well, here's how. First way is let him be the author of your life's story. Let him be the author of your life's story because he's got a whole lot better story to write than you do. Paul backs up his claim to apostleship by pointing to the miracle that God has done in his life, that Jesus has done in his life. He says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm confident of the version of the gospel that I preach because I didn't receive it from any man. It's not like I got it from somebody and went off script or that I got an errant version of the gospel from somebody else. I got what I preached directly from Jesus. You can't make this stuff up. It's not at all how I would have written the story. In fact, just the opposite. I wasn't predisposed to follow Jesus as Messiah. I was a hardcore unbeliever. He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my, many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul is saying, look, in my pre-conversion pre life, before I met Jesus, 
I was a zealot for the very law that these Judaizers are trying to, to tell you, Galatians, you must follow. I knew the law better than almost anyone my age, and I revered it. I was a rising star in Jerusalem. I was advancing faster than all of my peers as far as the traditions of the elders were concerned. It was rumored perhaps in Jerusalem that he might be the next great rabbi. You know, perhaps even the successor to the famous Gamaliel. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee so loyal to the ways of his people that he despised the cult that went about proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. He despised them so much that he became the chief persecutor of the church. In fact, in Acts 26, he talks about his persecuting activity, how he admits to to locking up Christ followers in prison. And then when they were put on trial, he voted to put them to death. He, he, He punished them in the synagogues and tried to make them renounce Jesus. His raging fury against them drove him under the authority of the chief priest to travel to foreign cities to seek them out, which is exactly what he was doing that day on the way to Damascus. When a blinding light descended upon him in the middle of the day, a light so bright that it drove him and his companions to their knees, and a voice from heaven spoke to him in Hebrew saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he answered back, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And guess what? I'm going to turn your life around. I'm going to make you my apostle to the Gentiles to open their eyes to the truth so that they too might be part of my family. And Paul's saying, look, how can you explain my life except that God turned me around in such a dramatic way? He captures all of this in a very understated way in verse 15 when it says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me on the road to Damascus that way in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I want you to notice several important things that Paul is saying here. He's saying first that being an apostle of Jesus wasn't something he dreamed up. That was the farthest thing from his mind. He was moving in the opposite direction. He would rather have destroyed the church and all Christians Next, I want you to see, he's saying that in spite of the story he was determined to write, God intervened to write a very different story. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that this new assignment was God's plan for his life from before the time he was born. Next, I want you to see that what Jesus did in stopping him dead in his tracks that day was an act of grace. It was God's unmerited favor, as it must be for us all. He didn't earn salvation. He didn't deserve it. Quite the opposite. He deserved wrath for opposing God's Messiah and persecuting his followers. In another place in Scripture, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Had Paul written his own story, it likely would have been that of a great rabbi, a zealous defender of the law and of the traditions of Israel. In fact, so zealous for the law that he persecuted this cult of those who follow Jesus of Nazareth. But you can't say God doesn't have a sense of humor, right? I mean, to take Paul, of all people, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a persecutor of the church, and make him the apostle to the Gentiles. It's as if Paul is saying to the Galatian believers, look, you be the judge. 
Will you regard me with suspicion as the false teachers want you to do, treating me like an imposter, imposter among the other apostles? Or will you accept that my apostleship comes from Jesus himself? Ask yourself, how else can this life of mine be explained except by the intervention of Jesus? I want that kind of life, don't you? A life that could only be explained by Jesus? Author and pastor and former atheist Lee Strobel tells a story in one of his sermons where he says, how can you tell the difference God has made in my life? My daughter Allison was five years old when I became a follower of Jesus. And all she had known in those five years was a dad who was profane and angry. I remember I came home one night and kicked a hole in the living room wall just out of anger with life. I'm ashamed to think of the times Allison hid in her room for fear of me. Five months after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, that little girl went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. At age five, what was she saying? She had never studied the archaeological evidence for the truth of the Bible. All she knew was her dad used to be this way, hard to live with, but more and more her dad was becoming this other way. And if this is what God can do to people, then sign her up. At the age of five, she gave her life to Jesus. God changed my family. He changed my world. He changed my eternity. When you surrender to Christ and let him write your story, it can have an eternal impact in the lives of everyone around you. If I had written my life story, I think I might have spent my days as a pediatrician with a nice practice in the Chicago suburbs, raising a nice little family and season tickets to the Chicago White Sox. That was kind of the ideal I had in mind. But as a senior in high school, I told my, the Lord that I wanted him to write the story. And I'll never forget the night in my room when I prayed, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Just show me. And within a week, he started showing me. And he hasn't stopped showing me. And it's been 48 years of an adventure now for Diane and I and my family 48 years of an adventure through college and seminary and pastoral ministry and seminary leadership. It's taken us from Chicago to Kalamazoo, Michigan, to Newtown, Pennsylvania, back to the Midwest and St. Paul, Minnesota, and finally back east again to Barnegat, New Jersey. No way did I ever think I would live one day in New Jersey, but here we are. And I think about the thousands of parishioners we've served over the years, especially those who've come to faith in Christ. And, and I think about hundreds of students I've had the privilege of teaching. And I realize that this is what God, by his sovereign grace, had in mind for me from before the time I was born. And I wouldn't trade God's story for my life for the one I would have written for anything. Though I still wouldn't mind having season tickets to the Chicago White Sox. Don't know how that'll ever work out. The point is, you want to live a life that can only be explained by Jesus. And if you're going to do that, first you have to let him be the author of your life story. He's got a better story to write than you do. If you've never done so, I'd like to challenge you right here, right now, to pray, Lord, however long I have left to live, I want you to write my story from this point forward. 
show me whatever it is you want me to do, and I'll do it. You know, that doesn't mean he's going to make you a pastor or a missionary, but it is going to mean that he's, he'll take control of your life and write the story in a way you maybe never imagined. And I'm telling you, the story he wants to write is way better than the one you would write. So live a life that can only be explained by Jesus. First way to, to live that kind of life is you've got to let him be the author of your life story. Secondly, let him be the source of your life's message. Let him be the source of your life's message because he not only has a better story to write than you do, he's got a better story to tell than you do. So in, in verse 16, we left off kind of in the middle of the verse where Paul had talked about, you know, how, how God had gotten hold of him through this revelation of Jesus Christ and turned his life around. And then he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So right after this conversion thing happened, I, I didn't go back to Jerusalem, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, which is up in Syria. So if the false teachers had been saying about Paul that, well, he got his gospel from Peter and James and John and those guys, but then he went off script. He, he just isn't doing it right. Well, Paul is setting the record straight. He's saying, no, that's not how it happened. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and revealed himself as the Messiah. And, and then he immediately went off into solitude in Arabia probably to rethink everything he'd been taught in light of the new revelation that Jesus actually is the Christ. And so now he's got to rethink his, his learning about the, the Old Testament. And it was very extensive. He was a scholar. He was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi in training. And now he's got to rethink all of that in light of the fact that, you know what, this Jesus of Nazareth actually is the Messiah. So I can imagine Paul now pouring over his Old Testament texts and, and now seeing for the first time how you know what? They all point to Jesus. And, and I imagine Paul discovering Old Testament passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that, that show clearly that the Messiah had to die for our sins. And I can imagine how thrilled he was when he came across uh, Psalm 16.10 again and saw it in a whole new light and, and how it spoke of how Messiah would come back from the dead. And I imagine his resolve to preach to the Gentiles growing as with fresh eyes, he began to see from the scriptures, from Genesis all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, they all pointed to how God's intent was not just to save his chosen people, but through his chosen people to save the world. That through, through the Messiah, people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation would come to faith and be part of God's family and it was probably in those early years of study and reflection that God not only refined his preaching of the gospel, but, but gave him the theology that would undergird all of the New Testament epistles that he ended up writing, all the theology that has been handed down to the church through him. In fact, it was several years before he ever went to Jerusalem and met up with Peter. Look at verse 18. He says, then after three years... After three years, I finally went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, another name for Peter, and, and remained with him 15 days. Well, that's not a long time. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. His point seems to be that he hardly spent enough time in Jerusalem 
to be adequately instructed in all the theology that stands behind the gospel he preached. He didn't go there to learn it from Peter. The Lord gave him the message that he was to preach. And he didn't go to Peter to get Peter's endorsement to be an apostle because Jesus had already made him an apostle. In fact, in those early years of his new life in Christ, he barely spent any time in Judea at all. Verse 21 says, Then I went, after only 15 days in Jerusalem, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. I'd only been in Jerusalem a very short time. So the church didn't even have time to get acquainted with me in person. All they knew was, hey, do you remember that, uh, that Pharisee named Saul who used to persecute us? And they'd say, yeah, really bad guy. Well, guess what? He's not one of us. And not only is he a believer in Jesus, he's preaching the gospel. Praise God, they'd say. What a powerful God we have that he'd take such a wicked man as Saul and, and turn him around and do such a marvelous thing in his life. Paul's saying that's basically all that the churches in Judea knew about me. Not preaching a message about how to obey the law of Moses, but a message about how in Christ all can be set free from the guilt and grip of sin and come alive to new life in him. Paul was not about to preach the message of the Judaizers. You know, that makes us a slave again to the law that they could never keep in the first place. Jesus had given him a message about freedom from the law and Christ's power to transform a life from the inside out. So not only was Jesus the author of Paul's life story, but Jesus was the source of his life's message. Not only was he persuaded that Jesus had a better story to write for his life, the one the better story than the one he was planning to write, but the message Jesus wanted him to proclaim was far better than the message he was used to proclaiming. Imagine if we all came with a button that you could push, you know, like an animated doll, you know, where you push the button and it talks. My son had a toy that he wanted when he was a kid, Robbie the Robot. You know, this was the early 90s, and he was just a little guy, and he desperately wanted this. I think he saw it on TV or something, and he wanted Robbie the Robot. That's all we heard about. You know, so I was for Christmas or his birthday, I can't remember which, we got him Robbie the Robot. It was a cute little toy, you know, it would kind of roll around on, on its uh, skates and, and it could play catch, sort of. Um, it had this, these buttons that you pushed, and when you pushed the button, it would say one of about a half dozen different phrases. And to this day, Josh is 35 years old now, and to this day, he can imitate with perfect inflection Robbie the Robot saying things like, Where's my helmet? Let's play catch. You're my friend. And you knew what you were going to get when you pushed Robbie the robot's button because there are only a few messages that he would, he would proclaim, if you will. Well, what if you had a button and people push your button? What would come out? It's kind of a scary thought, right? So, you know, somebody says, well, don't push his button. Don't push her button. You know, you push his button and he'll just give an earful about politics. Push her button, she'll just brag about her kids. Don't push his button, uh, he'll just complain about his job. Don't push her button, she'll just talk about her aches and pains. 
Don't push her button. Uh, she'll just try to sell you cosmetics or kitchen gadgets or vitamins. <laughs> Don't push his button. He'll just talk about sports. Now, that's not to say you should never talk about any of those things. The question is whether that's what everyone's come to expect when your button gets pushed, that that's what's going to come out. You know, Jesus said it's out of the overflow of your heart that your mouth speaks. Well, what if instead people came to expect that you would talk about the Lord when your button got pushed? Not in a, a preachy kind of way, but in a winsome way that just fits in everyday life. You know, whether it's a word of gratitude for a beautiful spring day, or whether it's the offer to pray for a friend who's going through a difficult time, whether it's the expression of dependence on God for a difficult trial you're going through, or simply a comment about something you're involved in at church, you know, like Wonderfully Made or Treehouse or Vacation Bible School. And most importantly, being ready to share the story of what God has done for you, of how you met Jesus and he changed your life. You know, one of the things I most admired about Billy Graham was that it seemed like no matter the situation, no matter who the interviewer, no matter what the question he was asked, he had a way of turning every conversation into a conversation about Jesus. No, no matter what the, they were talking about, he'd always end up getting it around to talking about, isn't it amazing how God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that through faith in him we could be forgiven of our sin and have eternal life in heaven. It came up every time he, the people engaged him in conversation. Graham Keith, who was treasurer of the Billy Graham Association and a lifelong friend of, of Billy, says that he remembered a time when they got on an elevator and there was this other guy who was already on the elevator and this other guy recognized Billy and he said, oh, you're Billy Graham, aren't you? And Billy said, yes, I am. And the man said, well, you are truly a great man. And Billy immediately responded by saying, no, I'm not a great man. I just have a great message. You know, few of us will ever have the impact of a Billy Graham or the Apostle Paul. But each of us can make an impact for Jesus in our home, in our neighborhood, in our classroom, in our workplace, in our community. It's a matter of living your life in such a vital relationship with him that it's as if he's writing your story and he becomes your life's message. So that at your funeral, instead of people just saying, well, he was a nice guy, or she was a pleasant woman, how about instead they'll say, God did amazing things in his life. Or you know what? She was always talking about the Lord. I've told you before about a friend of mine named Al Speakman. Uh, his funeral was about eight or nine years ago now. And the thing about Al's funeral was very interesting. It was like it was a tale of two Al's. B.C. Al, you know, before Christ Al, and then Christian Al. And, and there were people from both sides of the equation there at the funeral. And when they passed the mic around and eulogized him, so there were the B.C. Al folks, and mainly baseball players who had played on Coach Al's team. And Al was quite a coach, a high school coach. He'd taken his team deep into the regional playoffs and on a number of occasions. Never quite won the state championship, but he, he was a good coach, well-regarded. 
And uh, the BC Al folks would talk about, you know, Mr. Speakman, wow, he was, he was quite a coach. He really drove us hard. He, uh, he expected a lot out of us. And, you know, from time to time, he could lose his temper and let a few bad words fly. You know, you heard about BC Al. And then everybody else was like puzzling over this because I'd only ever known Christian Al. You know, the kindest, gentlest, most considerate man I think I've ever known. I'm thinking, wow, what a difference there must have been in Al's life. And the BC Al folks were saying, oh man, Al, he, he talked about baseball, push his button, baseball came out. He talked about baseball all the time. And, uh, and I think, wow, that's curious. You know, the Al I knew uh, was always talking about Jesus and what Jesus had done in his life. And the BC Al folks would say, oh, Mr. Speakman, he wanted nothing more than to, to win the state championship. He wanted that most of all. And the rest of us were saying, well, not in recent years. I mean, the Al we knew wanted nothing more than to see people come to faith in Christ. And, and the bottom line of the whole funeral service was basically to say there is nothing that can explain the transformation that took place in Al Speakman's life, nothing that can explain that other than Jesus. That he found Christ and Christ found him and Jesus turned his life around and made something truly beautiful of it. Jesus not only wrote his life story, but Jesus was the one he was always talking about. I want to leave people saying something like that about me, don't you? He lived a life, or she lived a life, that can only be explained by Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this autobiographical part of Paul's epistle where he gives us a glimpse into his own life and ministry and basically says there's no explanation for any of this except for Jesus and how he met me on the road to Damascus that day and turned my life around. And Lord, I, I pray that you would just instill in our hearts a desire for that kind of life, the kind of life that can only be explained by Jesus. And there's some of us here today who long ago said, we want you to write the story. You just tell us what to do, where to show up, and, and we'll do whatever you want us to do, Lord. There are many of us who have experienced that and, and are just so grateful for it. And maybe today this is a moment for us to say, Lord, I want you to keep writing the story. I'm, I'm going to keep my nose out and let you write the story. You just show me what you want me to do, and that's what I'll do. But Lord, there are others among us today who, as we've been talking, realize that, no, they still hold the pen in their hands. And they're still trying to write that story. They still desperately want it to come out to their satisfaction. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a moment when many of us in this room today would just put the pen down and say, I'm done. I'm done trying to write the story. It's never going to turn out right if I keep writing it. Lord Jesus, I want you to write the story. For as many years as I have left, I want you to write the story of my life. I trust you. And I want you to be at the heart of the message of my life. When people push my button, I don't want all kind of craziness coming out. I, I, want, 
I want a testimony of, of what you've done in my life to be at the forefront of what comes out of me. Lord, we, we're people who are, are just here today to say we surrender. We, we want you to be in charge. We want you to write the story. We want you to be the source of our message. Because we know it's only then that it will turn out right. It's only if we let you write the story that, that it's going to turn out for good. And it's, it's only you that it really makes any sense to brag about. So Lord, here we are. I pray that there would be many among us today who are just saying, I surrender. I turn the pen over to you. Lord Jesus, you write the story from here out. For the glory of our God and for our good, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.